Section 13 of Marion Fay by Anthony Trollope. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Volume 1, Chapter 13 The Brayside Harriers. The Brayside Harriers can hardly be called a crack pack of hounds. Lord Hoboy had been right in saying that they were always scrambling through ravines and that they hunted whatever they could find to hunt. Nevertheless, the men and the hounds were in earnest and did accomplish a fair average of sport under difficult circumstances. No Pegasus or Little Legs or Pigskin ever sent accounts of wondrous runs from Cumberland or Westmoreland to the sporting papers, in which the gentlemen who had asked the special pigskin of the day to dinner were described as having been in at some glorious finish on their well-known horses, banker or buff, the horses named being generally those which the gentlemen wished to sell. The names of Gorses and Brooks had not become historic, as have those of Ranksborough and Wissendine. Trains were not run to suit this or the other meat. Gentlemen did not get out of fast drags with pretty little aprons tied around their waists, like girls in a country house coming down to breakfast. Not many, perhaps, wore pink coats, and none pink tops. One horse would suffice for one day's work. An old assistant huntsman in an old red coat with one boy mounted on a ragged pony, served for an establishment. The whole thing was despicable in the eyes of men from the Quorn and Cotsmoor. But there was some wonderful riding, and much constant sport with the Brayside Harriers, and the country had given birth to certainly the best hunting song in the language. Do you ken John Peel with his coat so gay? Do you ken John Peel at the break of day? Do you ken John Peel when he's far, far away, with his hounds and his horn in the morning? Such as the Brayside Harriers were, Lord Hampstead determined to make the experiment, and on a certain morning had himself driven to Cronolo Thorn, a favorite meet halfway between Penrith and Keswick. I hold that nothing is so likely to be permanently prejudicial to the interest of hunting in the British Isles as a certain flavor of tip-top fashion which has gradually enveloped it. There is a pretense of grandeur about that, and, alas, about other sports also, which is, to my thinking, destructive of all sport itself. Men will not shoot unless game is made to appear before them in clouds. They will not fish unless the rivers be exquisite. To row is nothing unless you can be known as a national hero. Cricket requires appendages which are troublesome and costly, and by which the minds of economical fathers are astounded. To play a game of hockey in accordance with the times, you must have a specially trained pony and a gaudy dress. Rackets have given place to tennis because tennis is costly. In all these cases, the fashion of the game is much more cherished than the game itself. 
but in nothing is this feeling so predominant as in hunting. For the management of a pack, as packs are managed now, a huntsman needs must be a great man himself, and three mounted subordinates are necessary, as at any rate for two of these servants a second horse is required. A hunt is nothing in the world unless it goes out four times a week at least. A run is nothing unless the pace be that of a steeplechase. Whether there be or be not a fox before the hounds is of little consequence to the great body of riders. A bold huntsman who can make a dash across country from one covert to another and who can so train his hounds that they shall run as though game were before them is supposed to have provided good sport. If a fox can be killed in a covert afterwards, so much the better for those who like to talk of their doings. Though the hounds brought no fox with them, it is of no matter. When a fox does run according to his nature, he is reviled as a useless brute, because he will not go straight across country. But the worst of all is the attention given by men to things altogether outside the sport. Their coats and waistcoats, their boots and breeches, their little strings and pretty scarfs, their saddles and bridles, their dandy knick-knacks, and above all their flasks, are more to many men than aught else in the day's proceedings. I have known girls who have thought that their first appearance in the ballroom when all was fresh, unstained, and perfect from the milliner's hand, was the one moment of rapture for the evening. I have sometimes felt the same of young sportsmen at a Leicestershire or Northamptonshire meet. It is not that they will not ride when the occasion comes. They are always ready enough to break their bones. There is no greater mistake than to suppose that dandyism is antagonistic to pluck. The fault is that men train themselves to care for nothing that is not as costly as unlimited expenditure can make it. Thus it comes about that the real love of sport is crushed under a desire for fashion. A man will be almost ashamed to confess that he hunts in Essex or Sussex because the proper thing is to go down to the shires. Grass, no doubt, is better than ploughed land to ride upon, but taking together the virtues and vices of all hunting counties, I doubt whether better sport is not to be found in what I will venture to call the haunts of the clodpoles than among the palmy pastures of the well-breached beauties of Leicestershire. Brayside harriers, though they were, a strong taste for foxes had lately grown up in the minds of men and in the noses of hounds. Blank days they did not know, because a hare would serve the turn if the nobler animal were not forthcoming. But ideas of preserving had sprung up. Steps were taken to solace the minds of old women who had lost their geese, and the Brayside Harriers, though they had kept their name, were gradually losing their character. On this occasion the hounds were taken off to draw a covert, instead of going to a Soho, as regularly as though they were advertised among the foxhounds in The Times. It was soon known that Lord Hampstead was Lord Hampstead, and he was welcomed by the field. 
what matter that he was a revolutionary radical if he could ride to hounds at any rate he was the son of a marquis and was not left to that solitude which sometimes falls upon a man who appears suddenly as a stranger among strangers on a hunting morning i am glad to see you out my lord said mr amblethwaite the master it isn't often that we get recruits from castle hoboy they think a good deal of shooting there yes and they keep their horses in northamptonshire lord hoboy does his hunting there the earl i think never comes out now i dare say not he has all the foreign nations to look after i suppose he has his hands pretty full said mr amblethwaite i know i have mine just at this time of the year where do you think these hounds ran their fox to last friday we found him outside of the lowther woods near the village of clifton they took him straight over shap fell and then turning sharp to the right went all along hawes wall and over high street into troutbeck that's all among the mountains said hampstead mountains i should think so i have to spend half my time among the mountains but you couldn't ride over high street no we couldn't ride not there but we had to make our way round some of us and some of them went on foot dick never lost sight of the hounds the whole day dick was the boy who rode the ragged pony when we found him there he was with half the hounds around him and the fox's brush stuck in his cap how did you get home that night asked hampstead home i didn't get home at all it was pitch dark before we got the rest of the hounds together some of them we didn't find till next day i had to go and sleep at bowness and thought myself very lucky to get a bed then i had to ride home next day over kirkstone fell that's what i call something like work for a man and horse there's a fox in there my lord do you hear them then Mr. Amblethwaite bustled away to assist at the duty of getting the fox to break. "'I'm glad to see that you're fond of this kind of thing, my lord,' said a voice in Hampstead's ear, which, though he had only heard it once, he well remembered. It was Crocker, the guest at the dinner party. Crocker, the post-office clerk. "'Yes,' said Lord Hampstead, "'I am very fond of this kind of thing.' that fox is broken i think at the other side of the cover then he trotted off down a little lane between two loose-built walls so narrow that there was no space for two men to ride abreast his object at that moment was to escape crocker rather than to look after the hounds they were in a wild country not exactly on a mountain side but among hills which not far off grew into mountains where cultivation of the rudest kind was just beginning to effect its domination over human nature there was a long spinney rather than a wood stretching down a bottom through which a brook ran it would now cease and then renew itself so that the trees though not absolutely continuous were nearly so for the distance of half a mile the ground on each side was rough with big stones 
and steep in some places as they went down the hill. But still it was such that horsemen could gallop on it. The fox made his way along the whole length, and then traversing, so as to avoid the hounds, ran a ring up the hillside and back into the spinney again. Among the horsemen many declared that the brute must be killed unless he would make up his mind for a fair start. Mr. Amblethwaite was very busy, hunting the hounds himself, and intent rather on killing the fox fairly than on the hopes of a run. Perhaps he was not desirous of sleeping out another night on the far side of Helvellyn. In this way the sportsman galloped up and down the side of the wood till the feeling arose, as it does on such occasions, that it might be well for a man to stand still a while and spare his horse in regard to the further necessities of the day. Lord Hampstead did as others were doing, and in a moment Crocker was by his side. Crocker was riding an animal which his father was wont to drive about the country, but one well known in the annals of the Brayside Harriers. It was asserted of him that the fence was not made which he did not know how to creep over. Of jumping, such as jumping is supposed to be in the shires, he knew nothing. He was, too, a bad hand at galloping, but with a shambling, half-cantering trot which he had invented for himself, he could go along all day, not very quickly, but in such fashion as never to be left altogether behind. He was a flea-bitten horse, if my readers know what that is, a flea-bitten roan, or white, covered with small red spots. Horses of this color are ugly to look at, but are very seldom bad animals. Such as he was, Crocker, who did not ride much when up in London, was very proud of him. Crocker was dressed in a green coat, which in a moment of extravagance he had had made for hunting, and in brown breeches, in which he delighted to display himself on all possible occasions. "'My lord,' he said, "'you'd hardly think it, but I believe this horse to be the best hunter in Cumberland.' "'Is he indeed? Some horse, of course, must be the best, and why not yours?' "'There is nothing he can't do, nothing. His jumping is miraculous, and as for pace, you'd be quite surprised.' They're at him again now. What an echo they do make among the hills. Indeed they did. Every now and then the master would just touch his horn, giving a short blast, just half a note, and then the sound would come back, first from this rock and then from the other, and the hounds, as they heard it, would open as though encouraged by the music of the hills, and then their voices would be carried round the valley and come back again and again from the steep places, and they would become louder and louder, as though delighted with the effect of their own efforts. Though there should be no hunting, the concert was enough to repay a man for his trouble in coming there. Yes, said Lord Hampstead, his disgust at the man having been quenched for the moment by the charm of the music. It is a wonderful spot for echoes. It's what I call awfully nice. We don't have anything like that up in St. Martin's Le Grand. Perhaps it may be necessary to explain that the post office in London 
stands in a spot bearing that poetic name. I don't remember any echoes there, said Lord Hampstead. No, indeed, nor yet no hunting, nor yet no hounds, are there, my lord? All the same, it's not a bad sort of place. A very respectable public establishment, said Lord Hampstead. Just so, my lord, that's just what I always say. It ain't swell like Downing Street, but it's a deal more respectable than the Custom House. Is it? I didn't know. Oh, yes, they all admit that. You ask Roden else. On hearing the name, Lord Hampstead began to move his horse, but Crocker was at his side and could not be shaken off. Have you heard from him, my lord, since you have been down in these parts? Not a word. I dare say he thinks more of writing to a correspondent of the fairer sex. This was unbearable. Though the fox had again turned and gone up the valley, a movement which seemed to threaten his instant death and to preclude any hope of a run from that spot, Hampstead felt himself compelled to escape if he could. In his anger he touched his horse with his spur and galloped away among the rocks as though his object was to assist Mr. Amblethwaite in his almost frantic efforts. But Crocker cared nothing for the stones. Where the Lord went, he went. Having made acquaintance with the Lord, he was not going to waste the blessing which Providence had vouchsafed to him. "'You'll never leave that place alive, my Lord.' I dare say not. And again the persecuted nobleman rode on, thinking that neither should Crocker, if he could have his will. By the way, as we are talking of Roden, I haven't been talking about him at all. Crocker caught the tone of anger and stared at his companion. I'd rather not talk about him. My lord, I hope there has been nothing like a quarrel. For the lady's sake, I hope there's no misunderstanding. Mr. Crocker, he said very slowly, it isn't customary. At that moment the fox broke, the hounds were away, and Mr. Amblethwaite was seen rushing down the hillside as though determined on breaking his neck. Lord Hampstead rushed after him at a pace which for a time defied Mr. Crocker. He became thoroughly ashamed of himself in even attempting to make the man understand that he was sinning against good taste. He could not do so without some implied mention of his sister, and to allude to his sister in connection with such a man was a profanation. He could only escape from the brute. Was this a punishment which he was doomed to bear for being, as his stepmother was wont to say, untrue to his order? In the meantime the hounds went at a great pace down the hill. Some of the old stagers who knew the country well made a wide sweep round to the left, whence, by lanes and tracks which were known to them, they could make their way down to the road which leads along the Ullswater to Patterdale. In doing this they might probably not see the hounds again that day, but such are the charms of hunting in a hilly country. They rode miles around, and though they did again see the hounds, they did not see the hunt. To have seen the hounds as they start, 
and to see them again as they are clustering round the huntsmen after eating their fox is a great deal to some men. On this occasion it was Hampstead's lot, and Crocker's, to do much more than that. Though they had started down a steep valley, down the side, rather, of a gully, they were not making their way out from among the hills into the low country. The fox soon went up again, not back, but over an intervening spur of a mountain, towards the lake. The riding seemed sometimes to Hampstead as to be impossible. But Mr. Amblethwaite did it, and he stuck to Mr. Amblethwaite. It would have been all very well had not Crocker stuck to him. If the old roan would only tumble among the stones, what an escape there would be! But the old roan was true to his character, and to give everyone his due, the post-office clerk wrote as well as the lord. There was nearly an hour and a half of it before the hounds ran into their fox, just as he was gaining an earth among the bushes and hollies with which airy force is surrounded. Then, on the sloping meadow, just above the waterfall, the John Peel of the hunt dragged out the fox from among the trees, and having dismembered him artistically, gave him to the hungry hounds. Then it was that perhaps half a dozen diligent but cautious huntsmen came up, and heard all those details of the race which they were afterwards able to give, as on their own authority, to others who had been as cautious, but not so diligent, as themselves. "'One of the best things I ever saw in this country,' said Crocker, who had never seen a hound in any other country. At this moment he had ridden up alongside of Hampstead on the way back to Penrith. The master and the hounds and Crocker must go all the way. Hampstead would turn off at Pooley Bridge. But still there were four miles during which he would be subjected to his tormentor. Yes, indeed, a very good thing, as I was saying, Mr. Amblethwaite. End of section 13 Recording by Arnold Banner, Thurmond, North Carolina.